Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. I hope that God, by His Spirit, and through these words, will light your mind and heart with the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners that are no different than those that shall be cast into an eternity of torment in hell. Let me read to you the best verse from Romans chapter 1 first. And I mean it so differently than those of us who have heard it read as the best verse of Romans chapter 1 in other settings. Romans 1 and the 16th verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Amen. This is a wonderful declaration that we believe Amen. differently than it is often used and many of us heard for much of our lives. Right. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I wrote you last evening about not being ashamed. Paul was in prison, and he told Timothy... Don't you be ashamed of the gospel. Don't you be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. You go preach it like you know how and like you should. And Paul said he was not ashamed, but he knew whom he had believed and was able, and that God was able to keep that being his soul unto him against that great day of judgment. The brother that led us in prayer in the back room this morning, asked why everyone wasn't totally full of joy. And he had several reasons that could have caused it. And I give you another one. You must be ashamed of the gospel. Because there isn't another righteous explanation. And that isn't righteous. You must be ashamed of the gospel. Where is your zeal and your joy? Where is your joyful zeal? Where is your zealous joy? It should be showing. Or are you ashamed? We cannot be ashamed of Jesus Christ, nor the God we worship, nor the Bible, that ancient old King James Bible from which we get our understanding of God's gospel. Nor can we be ashamed of the preaching of that gospel, nor of the preachers of that gospel, but we should thank God for that gospel and let it change our lives. And the first thing it should do is put resolve in your heart that the younger brother spoke to a few minutes ago and put a smile on your face. If you don't have a smile on your face, you are worshiping the devil. A merry heart produces a cheerful, shining countenance. There are times for Christians to be sober, but they are the exception. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. 
we should be having a continual feast. Amen. And I wonder why. Are we ashamed of Christ? Are we ashamed of His gospel? Are we ashamed of His salvation? Are we ashamed of the truth? The apostle said he wasn't ashamed. And he said right here, I am not ashamed. And he would go on to preach in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and say that if we believe on Jesus Christ, we shall never be ashamed. Because when we stand before God, we will be owned as His. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on Him the way we should, we'll never be ashamed. The terror of being ashamed in that great day of judgment should move us. The apostle said we won't be ashamed if we believe on Him. We have the best news in the world. The wicked around us can get excited and have glowing, shining faces and paint their bodies and jump up and down for little sports activities. But we should be full of zeal and joy and be consumed with passion for this gospel, Amen. which is the good news about the Son of God and what He did for us. Now, I preached Romans chapter 1 to you, 11, beginning... 11 years ago, in 2009. And I took 21 sermons to get through Romans chapter 1. There is an incredible depth, breadth, width, length, and height of truth in Romans chapter 1. I don't plan on duplicating that. If the Lord has other plans, you'll see them in the future. But I don't have plans on duplicating that. Let me read to you now the little tiny context around that 16th verse. I'm going to start at 15 and read to 18. Our beloved brother Paul wrote this church in the shadow of the Roman Empire and told them that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he knew that it revealed the power of God unto salvation to Jews and to Greeks. He did not care if the Greeks thought his gospel foolishness. He did not care if the Romans thought preachers of the gospel ought to be punished, imprisoned, killed. He was not ashamed. I want you to remember the context of him writing to a church which he had never visited that was in the shadow of the Roman Empire. He would say that he might be bound, but the word of God is not bound, but is made manifest in the palace. Right. Do you know that it says that in your New Testament? He was making inroads in the palace of Caesar. He was not ashamed. Verse 15, So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Amen and amen. Two days ago, I wrote you 
And I wrote you a paragraph about Romans 1 truth because I had watched a two-minute video clip that I sent you about vile affections and a reprobate mind at Wake Forest University. And whether you clicked on the link or not, it matters little. It was just one more evidence of the twisted, rewired, perverse, abominable ways in which people think today right. about sex, primarily. And so this person wanted to be referred to with plural pronouns of they and them, and wanted to say that they were binary and above sexual genders and so forth and so on. Now, let me remind you of a little bit of history. Why don't you go look up the history of Wake Forest University and see what it originally existed for. Now, see if it wasn't a seminary. Right. So I wrote you, and I entitled it Romans 1 Truth, and... I told you at that time that I was being tempted to preach Romans chapter 1, but I hadn't succumbed to it yet. Because I wanted you to look at this world, and when you see news like that, know that God is true. Amen. God is on His throne. Right. He is not watching us from a distance. He is actively involved in people's lives like that and has rewired them to confirm that his word is true Hallelujah. and that acknowledging a creator, being thankful to him for his providence, right. retaining him in your knowledge and giving him glory as the everlasting God has benefits and punishments if you do not do so. Right. And so the news no longer becomes bad news. It's really, Lord, you're true. Amen. Lord, your word is true. Wow, I am living in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I am living in the fulfillment of Romans chapter 1. I happened upon a little 8 minute and 31 second clip of Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in the suburbs of Los Angeles in recent days. This was after Friday morning when I sent you that update. He wanted to make very clear that the Democrat National Convention and their party platform was Romans 1 turned upside down. Right. And he stated it very clearly. I have prayed for him weekly for years because he has probably the best known voice among conservative Christians and Baptists in America. And for the Lord to fully convert him and for him not to lose his courage, even though he's now 81 years old, but he is sharp at 81. He was asked, or he wouldn't have told, that when he had his church assemble against the governor of California and against the city of Los Angeles, that when he finished his sermon, he had a phone call by our president. 
And he said, our president was so gracious and wanted to tell me thank you for taking a stand and declaring church is essential. Amen. And so they had a chat. And he explained that in that chat, he told our president that all Christians that believe the Bible, all Bible Christians have to vote Republican. They cannot vote Democrat. And he said that in the conversation because the Democrat platform is diametrically opposed to the Bible's platform and God's platform and God's righteousness. And he kept referring to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Because by the time you get through the, the seven verses leading up to Romans 1, 28 and 29, you've got sexual perversity dealt with, but then there's 23 other sins listed there that are the breakdown of a society, and they embrace them. I didn't send you that 8 minute and 31 second link that I wanted to so badly in the preparatory email last evening because he made an error. And yes, he does not know the truth fully. He made an error about this chapter. And so I want to correct that. He missed a point about Romans chapter 1, and it's an important point. His point was, in the history of the world, and in God's government of the nations, and oh, he believes all that like we do, God has judged nations for sexual perversity, like Romans 1 teaches. Romans 1 doesn't teach that God judges nations for sexual perversity. I have taught you better than that. Romans chapter 1 teaches that God judges nations with sexual perversity for rejecting Him, starting with creation. And so when you have a school system that preaches evolution and will not allow creation to be taught, you violate the chapter in the first of its requirements. Then when you have a nation that is not thankful to God, but thankful to themselves for the good things that they enjoy, you have them running up against the second thing they do. Then when their worship, in their worship, they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and they deny the power of God in their lives, they're guilty of the third offense, and that is not giving God glory like the divine being He is. And so forth and so on. Romans 1 is the indictment of the human race of what God will do to them if they reject Him as Creator and reject the truth that He has given them from creation. And if they hold that truth of creation inside them and yet live a wicked life, He will rewire them for sexual perversity. Romans 1 is the source of sexual perversity being from God in judgment for rejecting Him as their Creator. It is not God's judgment for sexual perversity that misses the glory, the beauty, and the power of Romans 1. Romans 1 is, when you mess with me, I will mess with you, and I will cause you to shame yourselves by dishonoring your own bodies among yourselves. And it's a glorious prophecy, it's a glorious promise, and it's being fulfilled before our eyes. And yet, before we get into that indictment, after 15 verses of salutation and introduction, we have two verses 
before we must step into the indictment of the human race that runs from verse 18 to verse 20 of chapter 3. Two entire chapters of God indicting men and showing that they are all guilty before God. We're all guilty before God. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none that doeth righteous. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But before that happens, to give us a hint of what's coming, because Romans is a great epistle, I want you to know that it was written about fifth of Paul's epistles, but God chose to put it first. So the first thing you read is Romans chapter 1, after you leave the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel accounts of our Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth. It is easy to tell that by just reading the book of Acts and the internal evidence in the epistles of who he knows, where he is, and what he's doing, and who's ruling in Rome, and who's ruling in Caesarea. But the Lord wanted this first, and so it's first. And so, you're getting Romans chapter 1 this morning from this vantage point. 21 sermons I don't envision, but I want to start right there in those two verses, 16 and 17, and remind you that they save us from what's coming. And what's coming is terrible in verses, from verses 18 of this chapter to verse 20 of chapter 3. But then, you know, in chapters 3 and 4, he deals a death blow to Jewish legalists by going back to Abraham. And then in chapter 5, we get to go back to Adam, and we find the second Adam, and we find the, the most wonderful, concise statement of our deliverance from sin in Romans chapter 5 in its 21 verses. Amen. Just fantastic material in Romans 5. And Romans 8, some of you, I, I know that you think Romans 8 is your favorite chapter in the Bible. And it's about our salvation from this condemnation. And Romans 9 is going to tell us how we were chosen by God to that salvation. For we are the called according to his purpose. And that purpose is the purpose of election might stand, according to Romans 9. And then we get to Romans 12, where we're supposed to live our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service based on the first 11 chapters of Romans. And so we have a beautiful epistle in front of us. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This verse and the next are glorious verses, and they are our verses. They are not the Arminians' verses, who daily abuse them. We agree with Paul that the gospel has content that makes it the greatest news ever told. Do you believe that? I love to tell the story we sang. And we sang many descriptive phrases about that story of the gospel. We should never be ashamed of it. We should know it's the greatest content ever. The Arminians do not know how the gospel is God's power, nor do they know how faith relates to righteousness. They see the gospel as an offer of synergistic salvation for jails not for Roman believers. They never reconcile reprobate minds with all men coming to the knowledge of the truth. They love to quote 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6, because they don't understand the verses. So they use them as a soundbite, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, why does he darken and blacken their hearts in this passage and give them over to a reprobate mind? Why does he do that? Because he doesn't desire them to be saved. 
Those that he desires to be saved will hear this gospel and believe it. And they're the believers of Romans 1 and verse 16. This verse and the next are the summary of Paul's doctrine for the next 11 chapters. These two verses provide the germ of Paul's argument for his instruction to the Romans. Consider these words in this verse. Look at the gospel, which is good news, the power of God, salvation, everyone that believeth, Jews and Greeks, righteousness of God, in verse 17, revealed faith and the just. Those are wonderful words Amen. in two verses. Here is where we make several important distinctions to rightly guard and guide any study of the book of Romans. How we interpret and apply these verses determines how we interpret and apply the rest of the epistle. It is sickening and it is difficult for a pastor to undo the abuse and corruption of this verse by those who have turned its words into a mantra by caring only for the sound of the words. Let me summarize the verse this way in different words that present the sense as Nehemiah 8.8 8 tells me to do. I cannot wait to preach the gospel to you Roman believers for the good news it reveals is glorious indeed as it describes God's wonderful power in saving us by Jesus Christ whether we are Jews or Gentiles. Amen. The Apostle Paul did not desire to go to Rome to preach in its jails or its orphanages, or its brothels, or its malls. Paul wanted to go to Rome to preach to Roman believers. And it says so as clearly as can possibly be written and said in the 15th and the 17th verses, and in the 11th verse, and in the 8th verse, and the 5th verse. It just keeps saying it over and over again that Paul wanted to get to Rome for the sake of the believers that were there, to strengthen the believers, that the believers might be established in the faith once delivered to the saints. For I am not ashamed. As the coordinating conjunction for that starts this verse indicates, the verse is connected to the previous one. But let's get through verse 16 first. Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel to these believers in Rome. And that's who he wanted to preach to. Paul preached to kings. Paul preached by a river to philosophers, to honorable women, in a hired house with his own soldier, to a jailer, to barbarians, in tongues, in synagogues, to Roman soldiers, to the Jewish leadership, in Hebrew, to Caesar's household, in Illyricum, etc., etc. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He would take it anywhere, and we should thank God for him as we did not too long ago in a series of messages about the preaching trips of Paul. The gospel was thought inferior to the philosophical enlightenment of educated Greeks, which he had just mentioned in the immediate context, which might shape some. Like verse 14, I want some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. In verse 14, the gospel was seen as inferior to the glory of the Jew system and hopes. That's the book of Hebrews that answers that one. The gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Greeks. And it was just a month ago when I preached to you the glory of God and the salvation of men from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I hope you remember that. Where we were reminded that 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, for, I, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And so there's the great difference. To the Greeks, 
The preaching of the cross was foolishness. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. But to them that are called, that means ordained to eternal life, the preaching of the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Verses 22 through 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So this is not old to understand the verse correctly. Rome was the center of the world at this time, yet the gospel has no shame in such places. We have the best message, the best content, the best news, the best data that's ever been given in the history of the world. And we should embrace it, love it, learn it, read it, teach it, talk about it, get excited about it, share it with others and promote it. And be willing to defend it when we have to. David knew that God's word contained glorious things fit for princes, and he wasn't ashamed to share them in front of princes. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is even more glorious than anything David had of the Old Testament because that great mystery of godliness we have in 1 Timothy 3.16 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ includes a faithful saying. It includes mysteries. It includes future events far beyond man's experience or imagination. And it's revealed to us from heaven by God. Are you ashamed at all of Jesus' name or his gospel? Are you ashamed at all of prayer? Are you ashamed at all of holiness? Are you ashamed at all of righteousness? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The word gospel as a simple noun means good news, glad tidings, joyful information, Good news, glad tidings, joyful information. If you look at verse 17, the gospel reveals something. Don't ever forget that our religion is based on revelation. For therein, that's referring to the gospel in verse 17, is the righteousness of God. That's not just his inherent righteousness, but the righteousness he puts on us through Christ. That it's salvation of verse 16 that's being described here as righteousness put on us. For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, the words, the righteousness of God in him. But it's revealed to us in the gospel. The longer version of these words, and the words that I'm working on right now, are the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. The longer version is in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter. Look at this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto, Romans 1.1, separated unto the gospel of God, parenthetical, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, so it's agreeable to the Old Testament, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that's what it's about, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's a long version. You have the gospel of Christ here in Romans 1.16, but there's the long version. I like the long version. And if you were listening carefully earlier when I read the last three verses of this epistle and you were just listening here, wow, the apostle Paul opened and close with very similar statements. Right. What a message that we have. The gospel of God was promised in the Old Testament. Do you remember how many Sundays I got to share with you chapters of Isaiah that told this was coming? Right. That told this was coming. And it's about Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, 
that's incarnate sonship and declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Amen. When was Jesus truly shown to the universe to be the Son of God and declared to be the Son of God? After his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Because we have a risen, reigning, and returning Savior. Let our gospel here always be and only be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for no other message, no matter how sweet, will ever do. In perilous times when fables replace sound doctrine and truth for most so-called Christians, we must reject all forms of a prosperity or social gospel. We must reject all forms of humanistic or natural lessons for success and prosperity, emphasis on healing and miracles, political agendas to change the world or introduce the millennium. Let's just focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said was the theme. And when you look at his 16 chapters, when you look at Paul writing to a church that he hadn't met before, and he wanted to give them the whole spectrum of truth that God wanted to put first in all the epistles, we get a division between chapters 11 and 12 so that there are five chapters of practical application of the salvation which he takes 11 chapters to detail to us. He ends chapter 11 with a burst of praise to God and an amen and then opens up 12 with a therefore. This is how God preaches and teaches and gives us his gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ describes God's love of damned sinners and his wise and powerful provision of a savior for them according to the good pleasure of his own discriminating will to save them from every evil thing in themselves in the world and from his own perfect justice. We need to avoid giving the word gospel some sacramental sense like Catholics as a virtuous thing in itself. As if the four gospels or the sound of gospel reading or the sound of words has intrinsic value. Or we will carry the gospel around in the same manner as they carry their host and holy chrism. It's the power of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. In what sense is the gospel the power of God? Is it itself the power of God that if I lay a track on my unregenerate heart at night under my sheets in the morning, I will wake to be born again? Or is it what the 17th verse tells us? It reveals... It's the revelation of the power of God. The sense in which the gospel is God's power is very crucial and a critical distinction. Many hold the gospel as having sacramental power itself or as the potent means that can bring about the eternal salvation of those that were previously dead in sin and damned in sin. Many believe election is fully conditional on man's reception of the gospel. We deny Many believe the merits of Christ's death depend on that person's belief of the gospel. We deny. Many believe reception of the gospel is the powerful means of regeneration. We deny. We do not believe those things. Election is unconditional. The Jesus Christ's death was for his elect only. And regeneration takes place by the power of the Holy Ghost. Rather than the gospel itself being God's power, we understand it to reveal God's power. And so I give you 16 and 17 together because of the word reveal in verse 17, which tells us verse 16 is also dealing with revelation like we know from other places. The verses that I gave you last night were, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the preaching of the gospel through which he brings life and immortality to light. And that's the key. And we want to remember that and never let go of that and not be confused by these verses and the sound of words that we once embraced for a different interpretation and application. The immediate context says that God reveals it. And if we looked at the verse that came before in verse 15, to whom does Paul want to preach this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation? To whom does he want to preach it? To believers. Why does he want to preach it to believers? So that he can reveal from his faith to their faith new measures of the understanding of the grace of God. So that together they can be mutually comforted in their mutual faith. Look at verses 11 and 12. I long to see you that I may take some of you on soul winning sessions into the ghettos of Rome. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. Now to him that is of power to establish you. But you're going to need an apostle to come along once in a while who's going to be able to preach and do things in a different way and reveal truth that wasn't fully known yet in the New Testament. But he says, I want to come and bring you a spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. Not, I want to come and preach so that you can be regenerated. I want to come and preach so that you can be elected. I want to come and preach to establish you in the true faith. Verse 12, that is, in case you didn't understand verse 11, in case I didn't understand verse 11, when you find in the Bible the Holy Spirit's words, that is, he's about to give us a further explanation, which I do appreciate, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Oh, brethren, he's writing Rome. Oh, brethren, I can't wait till we can be together. And when we can be together, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you as an apostle that was separated to the gospel of God and called to be an apostle from the first verse. And I'm going to lay out the Lord Jesus Christ that was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. And we are going to comfort each other's souls that we have the greatest message ever given on earth. Make sure that we sing, I love to tell the story. That's what he wrote them. Make sure that we sing, I love to tell the story. To those perishing, the gospel is foolishness. Paul doesn't want to preach to those that think it's foolishness unless he has to. Then it becomes the savour of death unto death instead of life unto life. He wanted to be with those that was going to be life unto life because they had faith. And so he, he says in verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Does he mention mutual faith? Did Paul have faith? Did they have faith? He said their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world because they were in the city of Rome and they were holding to the doctrine of Jesus Christ in Rome. And so Paul was able to convey the righteousness of God, reveal it to them. Is the gospel intrinsically, literally, or actually foolishness? 1 Corinthians 1 says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Is it? intrinsically, literally, or actually foolishness? No, only by perception. Only by perception. It's it's just the way that it's heard. 
Jewish minds stumbled, stumbled due to Jewish fables. Greek minds considered it beneath them. But those chosen to salvation considered it a revelation of God's power and wisdom. And this distinction and this difference, which is backed up by the rest of scriptures, backed up by 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in several places, is powerful, weighty, and helps us understand this verse, which some of you have heard over and over again the wrong way. And I mean you and many others. Thank you, Lord. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. When a man like Paul got to travel to the center and capital of the Roman Empire and get a group of people together and tell them about the power of God, that is flat-out exciting. Amen. No, no, he wasn't going to be ashamed. He was going to be very excited to go and tell them about the power of God. He wasn't going in hopes that he might regenerate somebody by the sound of his words falling on their ears about, the, about Jesus Christ. He wanted to go and establish them in the faith. They had faith. He had faith. He wanted to build their faith, make them better Christians, and give them a spiritual gift that he had as an apostle. Jesus denied the gospel had power of its own to save men, no matter what methods were used to enhance it to an unregenerate audience. He said it wouldn't matter if Lazarus came back from the dead. It would not help. Because means like that do not help. We've got to have the monergistic, singular power of the Holy Ghost to regenerate us. God must work His great power in us before we can or will believe the gospel. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The gospel brings forth into activity what God has previously worked in us, including the gift and grace of faith. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. But that's verse 13. Verse 12 tells us that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God that worked it into us. And so apostles want to bring it out. And this morning, I want to bring it out. I want to show you this verse and find out how excited you get about it. Right. How much does it mean to you? How, what, how high of a value do you put on this body of information that's been kept secret since the foundation of the world, right. but is now made manifest by the, everlasting, by the commandment of the everlasting God? Paul didn't carry the gospel to powerfully regenerate sinners at Rome's malls, prisons, hospitals, orphanages, the Colosseum, or brothels. Do you know what he could have done in a Colosseum? Can you see Paul running around with a few hot dogs that he'd purchased from the hot dog stand? Mm -hmm. Running around, salvation, salvation. He's holding up a hot dog, but he's saying, salvation, salvation. For anybody that wanted to get saved. Nothing like it at all. Right. That's what they're doing when they have a mission based on feeding the starving, and building houses for the homeless. I'll get saved if you'll build me a house free. I'll get saved twice if you'll feed me that food that I see sitting right there on that table. The gospel does not bring life and immortality. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. The gospel doesn't bring righteousness. It reveals righteousness. Right. What does the power in the gospel describe? Here's a few. A virgin birth. Amen. Forgiving sins. The verses that I have for each of these have the word power in them. <laughs> virgin birth. The power of the highest shall overshow. Oh, yes. There's a lot of power in the gospel. Are you with me? Power. Yeah. A virgin birth. Forgiving sins. Laying down a life and taking it again. Give eternal life to those given him all power in heaven and earth, giving life to men, 
and endless life of intercession, the power of his resurrection and ascension to raise us from the dead spiritually, to raise our bodies for his work in saints, and so forth and so on. Amen. It's all the power of God, and it's revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Unto salvation. The gospel cannot give life for those perishing consider it foolishness. The gospel cannot give life for the natural man cannot and will not believe it. The gospel cannot give life for it is a savour of death unto death, not death unto life. The gospel cannot give life for those under Satan's spell will not believe it. The gospel cannot give life for believers already have life. And Paul wanted to preach to believers with life. Man is dead in hearing, so preaching long and loud will not change him. Man is dead in seeing, so he cannot see the kingdom of God. Man is dead in understanding, he cannot comprehend the gospel. Right. And the darkness comprehended it not, the Bible says. Man is dead in his affection, so he has no desire to believe or obey. To everyone that believeth. When we believe, we have the evidence of eternal life. It's the first evidence of eternal life, is to believe. To be left alone, it's proof of nothing. But it's the way we have to get started. We believe, we get baptized, and then we add to our faith the things that are described in 2 Peter chapter 1, and that is the evidence of eternal life. Right. And Paul is saying, I can't wait to see you Romans. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. I mean, you, you are such a strong church, and you are such strong believers in Rome. I can't, to be with, can't wait to be with you. God has set me apart to be his apostle to the Gentiles, and when I get there, I'm going to impart the best I've got from him to you so that we can be mutually comforted together about this glorious Savior we have who's the Son of God of the seed of David and declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. I can't wait to get there with you believers. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, I can't wait to get to Rome to find unbelievers and see if we can't turn them into believers. And yet they take this verse. Over and over again they take it from, from us and from the truth. But uh, they can't really get it out of our hands because we've, we're going to hold fast and not let go very easily. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, what will you do with this summary of the gospel? What are you going to do with verse 16? Look at verse 16. What are you going to do with it? Never be ashamed of Jesus Christ, his gospel, or the necessity of free salvation by him. Never be ashamed of it. We have the best gospel ever given. Amen. Really, it's the only gospel. The rest are just a perversion of it. Never allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to be corrupted with anything else that is so common and popular today. Keep Jesus Christ and him crucified, the preeminent focus in our church. Seek, learn, rejoice, and give thanks for God's power exercised on your behalf. Remember that you are bound to give thanks always to God for salvation, where belief of the truth follows God's choice from the beginning and sanctification of the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to lay hold of eternal life and then believe some more. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that she may know that she have eternal life and that she may believe on the name of the Son of God. Right. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, know that you have eternal life and believe on Him some more is what the verse teaches. For your assurance, valid belief of the truth will have works following. As a Greek or a Gentile, you should give thanks to God for his salvation and the good news from it. Now, when you look at that 16th verse, and anyone ever takes you to this 16th verse, or you overtake anyone to this 16th verse, remember the verses around it. The verses around it will remind you and help you as to what it's saying. Because the 15th verse says that Paul wanted to preach 
to those that were in the church of Rome that he wasn't going to Rome for another purpose. And that just helps so much with verse 16. Think. Paul identified his audience's faith as known worldwide. Why waste time there? If we thought the way Arminians thought, why waste time in Rome? Think. Preaching to Paul was not traveling to orphanages and prisons to the unregenerate. Think. Paul, in a very popular gospel preaching context, wanted to preach to believers. Think. Paul found some elect and he wanted to establish them in the faith. If the Arminian scheme is true, then Paul's choice cost lost men their eternal souls in hell. So you look back. You know, to most of you, I'm an old man now, but I can remember 40 years ago seeing verse 15 and 17, and all of a sudden the Lord just pulling back the veil on verse 16. It's just, it's just a great privilege and a blessing by God to pull back the veil on 16 by showing you 15 and 17 and knowing that you now have the passage under control, under your rule, God's rule, that you can apply it correctly and not be misled by it. Then we jump to verse 17, for therein, that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the righteousness of God. How do men, what is the theme of Romans? Justification before God. How is a man justified before God? Well, we're told in the gospel Jesus did it by the obedience of one in Romans chapter 5. Once we can get the Jewish legalists out of the way, some of you tell me Romans is your favorite book. I tell you it's not mine. You say to me, why isn't it yours? Because I do not like having to wade through Paul in comparison. When I say I do not like about anything in the Bible, it is only, ref it is only relative to Hebrews because it pains me to hear Paul have to spend so much time combating Jewish legalists in chapters 3 and 4 with terminology that Arminians just get so excited about as being their sound bites for their theology. Right. And there isn't any of that in Hebrews. That's why. But once you get me past 3 and 4 and get me into chapter 5, I've preached chapter 5 to you a few times in my life because it's wonderful. Because by the obedience of one. Right even when we were enemies, even when we were dead, when we were without strength. Moreover, rather, it's fabulous material. But verse 17 tells us that the gospel tells us how we're justified. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And that is not just preaching God is a righteous being. God is a righteous deity. It is teaching how do men stand righteous before God because all you have to do is read a little bit to know that that's the great theme of Romans. And these two verses give us the great theme as we look over the precipice, whatever word picture you need that might help, or as we look into the darker section of the indictment of the human race, starting right next in verse 18. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. 16 and 17 were going to be Paul, by his faith, revealing, conveying, explaining how we're saved, how we're made righteous to the Roman believers from faith to faith. 16 and 17 are a summary, germ form, already said this, of what's coming in 11 chapters, how we're saved. 
by Jesus Christ and God's power. And it's revealed through the gospel. Then, verse 18 starts the indictment, and it runs to 3 and 20. So for two whole chapters, we look into God's word, and we see the indictment of Gentiles, then Jews, then both. And when we look at verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because it's God's wrath against men. And the salvation from it, the claim, the beginning claim that those next two chapters don't apply to us, but that we are the saved, but that we are righteous. Because it says about these men who hold the truth in unrighteousness is faith. And so in verse 17, it said, for therein is the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is totally set in opposition to the unrighteousness of verse 18. We've got these two verses and there's a great division between them. In verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written in Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. It doesn't teach the just shall become alive by faith. It says the just live by faith. And back then, it was the destruction of the Jews by the Babylonians. And then the destruction of the Babylonians in Habakkuk in its three chapters. But the, the salvation and the confidence and the deliverance that we can have from God's judgment falling all around us is faith. Believe. To him that believeth, he's saved by the power of God. And the righteousness of God is conveyed from faith to faith, Paul's faith to the Roman faith that was spoken of throughout the whole world. And so believe, because wrath is going to fall. Wrath is going to fall on this nation. Wrath is going to fall on this world. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's where it's going to come from. And the wrath of God is revealed in the Old Testament. And the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel. Paul's going to be telling us about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is revealed by large events in world history that they are willfully ignorant of sometimes. Like the flood in 2 Peter chapter 3, they are willingly ignorant of. They don't want to think about a judgment like that. But God sent that judgment. And by those kinds of judgments, along with the scriptures and along with conscience, And along with creation, they know his eternal power and they know his Godhead and they know that they that do such things are worthy of death. That 32nd verse, Romans 1, 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, that list of things, but have pleasure in them that do them. They love that lifestyle. And wrath is coming. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It is true, it's coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This truth that they hold, these are wicked men. These are men totally depraved. They have truth and they hold the truth because it is understood by them. It was made clear to them. They had it in them. What is it? It is First, creation. Then it is providence. Then it is conscience. Where's creation? Well, the next two verses. 
because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God's shown them the truth. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It couldn't be any plainer. The wicked know that God exists and that God has eternal power, and he is God in any sense that they can think of him as being God. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. He can do anything he wants. He's sovereign. He's gov he governs his creation. They see children born in all kinds of different conditions. They see wars fought and the cruelty and the suffering and the oppression of the poor. They see all these different things. They know that there's a God in charge. They see animals devouring each other, which we like to look at on National Geographic and other channels to see animals devouring each other. But you look at the terror of that destruction and some poor little animal being ripped apart by another. Where did all that come from? They know that there's a God. And that God has eternal... All kinds of things can come, right. come together. And it starts with creation. David would write something... Psalm 19 in the first six verses is, is the commentary on this right here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God. See verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. All men ought to give God the kind of worship that matches up with sunshine. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork day into day, utter his speech, night into night showeth knowledge. It's being preached in every dialect and every language, and that's the truth of verse 18. They hold the truth of creation in unrighteous living. And verses 19 and 20 explain that they know it because God's shown it to them. It is manifest in them. Total depravity is not that the seeing, the, the seeing ability of man is depraved. It's not that his thinking apparatus is necessarily depraved. It's this thing right here. Right. Their hearts do not want that. They do not want to retain God in their knowledge. They don't want to think about him. They don't want to humble themselves to him. And it's important for you to remember that because reprobates can get into churches very easily because they can assent mentally to the things that we say, but there's no change in their heart. So many are called and few are chosen. Right. Providence is in verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Thankful for what? Thankful for what he does and gives to them every single day of their lives. He sends his sunshine, his rain on all of them. This is backed up in Acts chapter 14 where Paul told the idolaters there that God has not left himself without a witness in the earth by, filling your, by sending rain and filling your hearts with food and gladness. And they should give thanks for that. Where's conscience? Well, conscience is in chapter 2, 12 through 16, but it's also in verse 32, which I just gave you, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Are there any of the, are there any of the sins in verses 23 through, tw through 31 that nations of the earth have punished with the death penalty? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nations have had laws, capital crimes, against sodomy for thousands of years. Just about all nations. And so they know. And that's what chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 is going to teach us. And so they've been taught enough that they are without excuse. The wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 would say that we should thank God that we've been saved from the wrath to come. Right. The wrath is coming. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us, and we shall be saved in that great day. The wrath of God abides on those who do not believe. 
You are learning some wonderful verses in, in the Gospel of John, and I hope they know them, especially chapter 3, even though you're moving on to more chapters, 5 through 7. Don't forget some of the things that you've heard. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe He's the Son of God. Believe He's coming again. Right. Fall at His feet. Commit yourself to Him. Follow Him in discipleship. Let Him tell you however He wants you to live, and live that way. Love Him. Talk about Him. Share Him with others. Come into this place and encourage each other and help us to establish each other in the faith that was once given about the Son of God. Right. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I hope no one here is ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the greatest message ever told. And when you're talking to others and whenever you speak in public, you make sure you limit the use of God. In the Bible, it's understood. When you're dealing with Hebrews and you're dealing with going into the synagogue, you can use the word God because there's only one to deal with. But when you're out there with others, do you know whose name you should not be ashamed of? Jesus Christ. That'll, oh, that'll make a difference. You will find that that will make a difference because Allah's a God to a Muslim. Vishnu's a God to a Hindu. But they don't have a place for Jesus Christ. And He is our Lord and our Savior. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word. Please stand with me.